Well, um, this is the third week. I'm going to be here a total of five in this, uh, in this block. Uh, so, uh, and, and then I'm here uh, this week and the next two weeks. So five weeks. And uh, I, uh, just talking about it with, uh, with Wayne and with Andre, thought, uh, spend those five weeks on 1 Corinthians. Now, that's kind of odd. So it's not exactly like doing an exegetical study. Like, you know, some pastors spend uh, three years and they get through the first three chapters of Romans or something like that. Uh, and then uh, other times it's, it's more big picture, like, like 20 minutes on 1 Corinthians. So this is kind of like uh, a Google Maps, not of, the, not of the neighborhood within two blocks of your house, or at the other extreme, all of North America. This is sort of... You know, a Google Maps on Sacramento. Five weeks on the big picture, but close enough that you get a lot of the, a lot of the details and, and, and the way the themes um, are interwoven. That's my, that's my hope. Um, and uh, it occurred to me also when I saw my name on the thing. Yeah, the thing. Uh, it says, you know, Dr. Nystrom. So I ought to maybe tell you, I, uh, I did my PhD work in two, did I tell you this before? Two areas Roman social history. So my PhD is in two areas: Roman social history and New Testament theology, which means I'm totally fun to be with. Uh, so, <laughs> so and I know. Woo, tell us another story, Uncle David. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I teach right now at, at Western Seminary. I'm a professor of New Testament at Western Seminary here in Sacramento. So, okay. So, uh, first, uh, first Corinthians, next to Romans, is probably Paul's most important letter. And I, I showed this slide the first two weeks. Um, and it might be, maybe it is his most important letter, because Romans, uh, which is often thought of as his most important letter, that's something he does, he does very rarely. That's a little slice of a systematic theology. But most of the time, his letters are responding to issues, problems that have arisen at churches that he's founded or that he knows about. And so that's what 1 Corinthians is, and it's the best example of that. So it's the best example of Paul doing what he does most of the time. Um, and and uh, we get to see him apply theology to real-life situations just like you and me. It's one thing to study and pass a test on something that's all theoretical, but to actually know how to handle situations, to know what to do or even how to think about a situation that comes up, that's pretty critical. So that's what Paul's doing here. Uh, so quick outline. Uh, the first six chapters are a response to a letter Paul has gotten from uh, a, a group called, that calls themselves Chloe's people. Now, they didn't have church buildings back then, but they, they met in homes. So this is clearly a small group, maybe 30 people, probably no more than 30 people, that met in Chloe's house. That's really interesting that it's a woman who's, uh, who's the head of this house, and we know quite a bit about Roman sociology. Uh, there were, there were uh, families that were extremely wealthy, and if the father, if the paterfamilias passed away, uh, Roman women actually had more uh, opportunity for authority than almost any, other, uh, in almost any other culture in the ancient world. So um, she's clearly an important person, and it's really interesting. The first letter he responds to is one from Chloe's people. Chloe's got people. I don't have people, but Chloe's got people. Uh, and then chapters 7 through, hard to tell, 12, 11, 13. But, uh, but beginning chapter 7, Paul responds to a letter he's gotten from the church as a whole. There were probably, it looks like, four different house churches that made up 
the church in Corinth. And uh, that's where we're starting today. So uh, sexuality and gender issues, chapter 7, knowledge versus love, meat and idols, uh, chapter 8, uh, apostleship and priority, chapter 9, knowledge versus love, demons, chapter 10. So I'm trying to get through 7, 8, 9, and 10 today. We'll see. And then, uh, and then somewhere, chapter 12, chapter 13, he starts... Uh, just not really answering their questions anymore, but uh, taking some of those themes and, uh, and running them out. Does that make sense? So that's what we're doing today, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. And the foundation for this letter, some of the foundations are um, some basic truths or principles that guide Paul's thought everywhere. We, Christians, we live in this world, but our true citizenship is in heaven. He actually uses the phrase, we are, we are uranopolitae. So, uranos, O-U-R-A-N-O-S, is the Greek word for heaven. So, we are citizens of heaven. You might remember that in 2 Corinthians, he says, we're ambassadors. We, we, you know, we're from heaven, but we're ambassadors here. So, an ambassador lives in a country not their own. But they represent the other country in the place they're living. And they ought to understand the place they're living... And they ought to have affection for the place they're living, actually. To be a good ambassador, all those things are true. So, and, and, Paul's, and we often, in Paul's thought, we get kind of confused about where our true citizenship is. And he also say about the human experience, we're broken and we can't fix ourselves. Right? You ever notice that? You feel like you're broken? I do. I mean, right? I mean, like Paul says in other letters, that which I don't want to do, I watch myself doing and while I'm watching myself doing it, I'm saying to myself, don't do that. But I watch myself do it anyway. Like, there's this thing in me that's just whacked out. And I can't fix it. We need rescue from outside. We can't fix ourselves. And then there's the reality of the spiritual realm. There are spiritual forces all around us. And Paul's going to say, we're going to see it today, um, that before the crucifixion and resurrection, these, they're unwholesome spiritual forces, those allied with Satan, and Satan himself is an, unspiritual, an unwholesome spiritual force. That before the crucifixion and resurrection, um, well, Satan's like a burglar who's broken into your house while you're on vacation. And he's, he's opened all the windows and turned up the heater full blast and is running all the power, you know, and so just, he doesn't have the right to do that, but he's broken into your house. So he's got the power to do it. That's why the parable of Jesus, you know, you have to bind the strong man. So he's the strong man that's broken into the house. And before the crucifixion and resurrection, he, another image is, he's sort of like a pit bull running loose in your neighborhood. You got to, I mean, you got to watch out or he's, he can attack you. But, but after the crucifixion and resurrection, that event, the crucifixion and resurrection, breaks Satan's power. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians um, you know, that the principalities and powers, if they only understood the secret plan of God, would never have crucified the Lord of glory. And that, and that, and that Christ triumphed over them in the cross. Well, a Roman triumph, that's when a Roman general, an army defeated a foreign army, and they would, they would parade the defeated soldiers through the streets of Rome. That was a triumph. So the power of Satan is broken. 
So at the crucifixion and resurrection. Now he's still active. So after the crucifixion and resurrection, Satan is sort of like, and this unwholesome spiritual powers are sort of like a pit bull chained to a stake in your neighbor's yard. Just don't go inside the length of that chain. But we foolishly sometimes do. And when that happens, we open ourselves to those unwholesome spiritual forces. Does that make sense? So those are some of the foundation principles. And also, he's going to say, some things are more important than others. And we're going to see that today in chapter 9. And that's true for all of us, right? I mean, if, if my wife's been asking me to, you know, to, to take care of the bushes on our driveway in front of our house. You know, so, so I say, okay, I'm, I'm going to finally do it today. But if, I'm, if I get home and, I, and there's fire engines there and my house is on fire, but I say, nope, I said I was going to prune those bushes. You know, that's, kind of a, that, that's a misunderstanding of priorities, right? So, we, so Paul will say there are certain priorities, and he's gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to try to show today or articulate in chapter 9 quite what some of those priorities are for how we live our lives. Okay? So chapter 7 through uh, 10. Chapter 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill this marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to, the, to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. What do you see? What strikes you? Mutual submission. Mutual submission. Now, this is, this is extraordinary. I mean, the, the ancient world didn't know any kind of mutual submission but that we're supposed to have the interests of one another above our own. The basic idea in the Roman world was, you know, is get to the top and make other people do what you want. So this idea of mutual submission is really quite extraordinary. In fact, when, you be, when Paul began articulating, people had, you know, it was like they never heard anything like that before. What else do you see? Well, we, clear, we clearly don't know. There's something going on there that prompts the first thing. Now about the matters, the matters which you wrote. Here's my response. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But then he goes on to talking about, about sexual relations within marriage. So we must be talking about other kinds of sexual relations. Must be like they're having wacky immorality there. <laughs> and so they've asked him a question about that. Boy, if we're Christians and God forgives us, then can we do whatever we want? And the answer is no. <laughs> so no, you've, you've got to be. You got There's fidelity in marriage, and there's also an understanding of, of the power of our of our humanness. So the husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife, and and and, and uh, vice versa, only to the spouse. But also, you know, you're not supposed to use uh, that uh, sexuality as a as a weapon against your spouse. So fidelity in marriage, mutual submission. So again, don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. So it's by mutual consent and for a time so that you can uh, uh, devote yourselves to prayer. But come together again, otherwise Satan can tempt you. I think we said, uh, the last time I was here, we mentioned about this word temptation, pyrasmos, uh, which is from which we get our word pirate. So the Greek word pyrasmos means either temptation or test. 
So in our world, we lay emphasis on the intent of the tempter. She tempted me. Like I'm just innocent, Gomer Pyle, walking down the road, and somebody tempts me. But, but the Bible lays emphasis not on the intent of the tempter, but on our reaction to a temptation. Because sometimes we're tempted, and the person, the person is maybe that we feel tempted by, they're not even trying to tempt us. So the Bible lays emphasis not on the intent of the tempter, that's what we do, but on our reaction to it. And if we resist, then it's not a temptation. It's a test that makes us stronger. It's an exercise. It's a workout routine. But if we give in, then it's a temptation. So, uh, but Satan is, you know, could put in your mind a, a temptation. So don't, you know, because of your lack of self-control. So don't, uh, you know, don't give Satan those opportunities. Don't take yourself to places where you know you're weak. That's the broader principle. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish all of you were as I am. But each of you is your own gift from God. One is this gift, another is that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, yeah, it's, it's great if you stay unmarried. Just like me. I'm not married, Paul says. But if you cannot control yourselves, then go ahead and marry. Because it's better to marry than to have that, that natural human uh, uh, drive just eat you alive. Now, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband not, must not divorce his wife. And the idea here is that, um, you know, for, for, for biblical fidelity, biblical marriage, it, it's, a, it's a covenant. You're saying, I'm committing myself to this other person uh, for, you know, for good or for ill, for richer, for poorer. So it's not a matter of um, getting married in the Bible isn't like uh, buying a new car that you're going to get another one when this one, you know, wears out 10 or 15 years from now. Um, but it is, it's, about, it's about the fidelity of commitment that God has for us. And that actually, um, when we objectify things, if we objectify a car, we, we miss the opportunity to allow the car to help us learn about, now my analogy is breaking down, but uh, <laughs> help, <laughs> what, what, what does that reveal about us? See, it, when we objectify something, we say, I'm totally fine the way I am, and I'm going to use this thing. But being in a married relationship, Paul says, the Bible says, well, that's, God uses that to help expose and reveal certain things about ourselves. Right? That's kind of one of the painful but beautiful things about marriage is when you start to realize um, next to your spouse, like I certainly did, like there's, I got way more problems than I ever thought I did. <laughs> there's parts of me that aren't nearly as nice as I thought there were. I learned, I, I'm really good at listening for the first 30 minutes. And then I, then I started to not pay attention. Christina can listen for days. And that has really helped me say, like, wow, you're not, you're not, the, you're not nearly, your awesome scale, your self-evaluation of your awesome scale now has to come down a little bit. Does that make sense? So don't separate. But if for some reason you do, then you should stay unmarried because a marriage covenant Paul says, it's, I mean, the intent is for it to be for life. So the reality of our human nature, uh, reason, self-denial, theme of Satan there, 
Don't let your actions be a cause for sin for another, and again, mutual submission. To the rest I say this, now I but the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. For the unbelieving spouse, and this is typically how it's translated in English, has been sanctified. Now, this is actually not what the Greek says, but part of it, it it's the, it's the uh, weakness or the, the poverty of the English language. What the Greek actually says is, the unbelieving spouse is in the process of being sanctified by the believing spouse. So what does that mean? So if you, if you have a, a couple and neither one of them are Christians, but the wife becomes a Christian, and suddenly, you know, and, and, uh, instead of uh, uh, parting or whatever, she has a Bible studies at her house, and a husband comes home, and like there's praise songs on the radio, and, you know, so what happens is that the husband now is in the ambit of spiritual, positive spiritual forces. The Holy Spirit's at work in the life of his wife, and that means there is a, he is put, he is placed himself, whether he knows it or not, he's found himself within the range, the power, as it were, of God. And so he is actually in that process. He's being drawn toward the good. That doesn't mean he's saved, but it means it's, you know, it's, it's like, like the, the net has been cast out there and God's pulling the net in. That's what Paul's saying. Not he is saved, but you're in the process of being saved. And the unbelieving wife, if it's the unbelieving wife, she's been sanctified. She is in the process of being sanctified uh, through her husband. And then there's the promise of, of, uh, of children then also being uh, brought closer. They're in the ambit of God's power. <clears throat> but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. So if, if, if one of you has become a Christian, but your spouse is not, and like, and like that's just driving them nuts, your newfound devotion, then, uh, you know, that if, that, if they're just not willing to live in that new reality, then Paul says, then let them go. But how do you know, wife or husband, how do you know? It might be a long time. So the unbelieving spouse has been sanctified, and there's these, I haven't mentioned this yet, but in the, you may remember, if you or call to mind, in the New Testament, there's really three tenses of salvation. Paul says, we have been saved. We have been saved by what Christ has done for us, and we've accepted that, that gift. People also say, we are being saved. For those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he can also say salvation is a future event to which we, which we await. Uh, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So there's a triple pattern or a triple sense to salvation. On the one hand, we have been saved. We've come to Christ in faith. The Spirit, we, we've asked for, uh, as we used to say in, uh, in elementary Sunday school, ask Jesus into my heart. And so that, that is saved us. We, are saved. we can't save ourselves. What God has done, we accept that gift. But then there's the process of growing in Christ. That is the are being saved or, or being drawn closer to God. And then will be saved. That's, the, that's at the end of time. Does that make sense? So, that, so it's that middle one. You know, like that God's thrown that net out there and he's pulling people towards him even though they may not 
even know that's what's going on yet. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? Don't become uh, uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? Yeah, don't worry about circumcision. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. And you might ask yourself, well, wasn't the circumcision thing a command? So, um, what Paul's saying here is this, um, and this is, uh, this is really an example of, mo- of what we might call moral reasoning. Um, and think about what Jesus does with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite follow the rule. Don't encounter pollution. If you touch a dead body, you're unclean for a week. If your shadow falls across a dead body, you're unclean for a day. So the rule says, don't, you know, avoid it. That's why they actually walk in a circle around the dead body, just in case he's dead, because he's lying there motionless. Just in case he's dead, if their shadow fell across him, they'd be unclean for a day. But the parable of the Good Samaritan, the way Jesus tells it, you know, the one... uh, Pharisee understands and says, wow, actually, um, you know, the, the Samaritan does the right thing. So it's, it's actions, and then we follow, our actions follow rules, and rules are meant to preserve some deeper principle. And then principles are based on a grounding. And so the grounding for Jesus is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But that understanding the principle is the critical issue. And, what, and Jesus' concern with the Pharisees is they've forgotten about the principles and are only worried about the rules. Does that make sense? And, and both the rules and the principles are, are law. So it's which law are we talking about? So Paul here is saying, yeah, circumcision, uncircumcision, those are rules. Those are examples of how we, uh, that were meant to help us preserve something deeper. What is that something deeper? Being set apart to God. Understanding that, having our, you know, having our focus on God, having that be our allegiance. Does that make sense? Not everybody is nodding, but it's okay. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do it. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So if you're a slave, stay that way. That is not going to play very well in, uh, you know, in the culture of America in 2020. Now part of this is He's talking about urban household slaves, and we know that urban household slaves were set free by the age of 30. So this is a very different kind of slavery than the American experience. But still, the deeper principle here, I think, is this. Um, If we are absorbed with our sense of fairness and justice within the way this world works then our focus is not on God and God's economy, 
It's on ourselves and this world. There are things that are more important than this world. Think about even when we pray. We pray oftentimes like we, we pray, Lord, give me patience. Well, that's, that's a great thing to pray for. But it's still us telling God what to do. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Instead of saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Form, what Paul wants us to do is say, Lord, form my heart. Form me so that I have a mind like yours instead of thinking what, what does the me of this world want or think it deserves. Does that make sense? It's a very different approach. So, your current situation. Climbing the ladder, that's the way of the world. What is more important? What is more important is your status in Christ, Paul says. The believing spouse has been, and the believing spouse has been sanctified by the unbelieving spouse. So it's the inner person to which we should pay attention. So um, the name Boethius is there. So Boethius was, uh, he, he wrote a book in the 500s called The Consolation of Philosophy. And for about seven or 800 years after he wrote it, it was one of the most famous books uh, in the world. Um, and it was uh, the foundation for uh, much of moral philosophy for the next thousand years. And it's a very brief book. And what happened to Boethius was he was a Roman official. I mean, uh, this is after the Germanic kingdoms had come in. But he was serving a Germanic king, doing really well. Uh, but something happened, and the Germanic king changed his opinion of this guy, Boethius. He found himself thrown in prison. I think he had like 30 days or two months, and then he was, then he was executed. So he's sitting in prison, and he's kind of depressed, as you might imagine. <laughs> Uh, but then he, then he writes this book, and, and he, basically, he basically says his um, lady philosophy comes to visit him. And she says, look, most people spend all of their time trying to figure out how to make their life in this world work. But really, you can affect a, only a very small part of your life. Where you were born... You don't get to choose that. You don't get to choose whether, whether uh, a virus in China starts to sweep across you know, your world. You don't get to choose if that shuts down production in China and you're trying to, you're trying to market and sell to China and now your, whole, you know, your business empire is, is, is on the fritz. So Boethi Lady Philosophy says to Boethius, um, the, the goddess Fortune... The Roman goddess Fortune is a woman, and she has a wheel of fortune, <laughs> and she spins it, and it's at random. It's all really at random, you know. So some people who are who are wealthy, and it seems like the world just works for them. They're, it's, they're just it's random. And other people who get whacked, that's kind of that's the way the world works. So Lady Philosophy says to Boethius. What you can do is focus on the inner life. Which, of course, is exactly what the New Testament would say. You know? So not only are we saved from certain things for Paul, but we're also saved for certain things. We're saved for life in the Spirit, to develop that, that relationship with the Spirit of the living God that dwells in us. To develop... Um, connection with one another in a local body. These, these, things, these things are not about the way of the world. Does that make sense? So, it's the inner person. 
and then there are times of difficulty. Now about virgins. So they've written them about virgins. We don't know what they wrote, right? Because we don't have their letter. So it'd be kind of nice to know what they wrote. Like, what is it about virgins? This is, I have no command from the Lord, but give a judgment as one who is, uh, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. So the, the real question is, what's the present crisis? And nobody really knows, although maybe the best guess is that there, um, uh, there was a famine, because that kind of thing happened. And so there was just real, uh, just real tough economic times. It's possible. And what I mean, brothers and sisters, is the time is short. So some people take this to mean maybe Paul thought that Jesus was coming like next week. Probably unlikely, actually, I think. But there are some people who think that. I think it's more likely it's some sort of uh, crisis. We knew that we know there were famines uh, in the region. And, uh, and you, know, they, you know, they didn't have, I mean, their idea, how they transported foodstuffs in the ancient world was not anything like, you know, today. So it, uh, it was very difficult to transport grain more than about 50 miles overland. It became uh, uh, economically unfeasible. So it's probably, it's probably that. But then he says, and the, and the, for the world in this present form is passing away. So once again, spend a little more time thinking about your eternal soul and less about the stuff of, of this world. And I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is and should be concerned about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. So um, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I'm going to say, great stress famine. Maybe it's just that we live in a demanding world. It's hard to remember that we are ambassadors here and focus on the inner life. So you should be equally yoked. I don't want you to marry unbelievers. Stay married. Uh, if, you're not, if you become a believer and your spouse is not, if your unbelieving spouse is, is willing, and you may save your spouse. Now, chapter 8. Is this still, are we doing okay? I'm fine, so I just thought I'd ask if you were. <laughs> now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. You ever, right? Isn't that right? Yes. Some people who are a little bit too excited about themselves, like you're just like, wow. I came back from college after my junior year, and, and I had a great junior year. I was feeling really good. Walked in the front door, and there's my mom with the Avon lady. And the Avon lady was just telling my mom about her daughter. And I, like, I had no interest in that. I, was, I, just, fin- I, mean, I just got all A's in it for the first time, and I'm thinking... I'm feeling pretty happy about myself. And so I got to listen to this Avon lady talk about her daughter. And then my mom said, looks like you're putting on some weight. And I, so I said to the Avon lady, um, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, and then I said to the Avon lady, do I look fat to you? And sort of turned around. And she smiled and said, only between the ears. 
That was great. Boom. <laughs> totally deserved it. <laughs> so, right, knowledge puffs up. <laughs> so, so, but... But the gifts God's given us and our ability to acquire knowledge or whatever, therefore the building up of the whole body, not just for you. So if you have that knowledge, guess what? You know, you didn't do anything to deserve the ability to acquire it. Whatever gifts and talents you have, the gifts are gifts. <laughs> Meaning you didn't deserve it. <laughs> Someone gave it to you. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. So, um, if you ate, if there was, if you ate meat in the ancient world in the city, uh, certainly it was, it was, it was an animal that had been sacrificed to some idol. And they would, you know, they wouldn't burn the whole thing. I mean, they, they, they'd, they'd sacrifice it to an idol, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, one thigh they would burn, but the rest of it they'd sell. That's how you got meat. So, if you were eating meat in the ancient world, you're eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. And so people are saying. Wow, can I eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul says, uh, sure you can. Go ahead and eat that idol meat. Because idols are just wood and stone. Idols, physical things, have no necessary spiritual efficacy. No necessary spiritual power. So an idol is nothing at all in the world. And there is no God but one. There's only one God. For even if they're so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, so that's, that's recognizing there are spiritual forces out there. Yet for us, there's but one God, the Father. So go ahead and eat that idol meat. Because physical things have no necessary spiritual efficacy. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled for them. They, so conscience is weak, that maybe is the wrong translation. Since they, are, since they have, maybe have experience, but folks who have, maybe they used to belong to that cult, for them, a physical thing has efficacy. Meaning because they, they used to belong to that cult. So that physical thing, that, that's a place of weakness for them. Does that make sense? It's like walking inside the length of that chain. So, so believers, after the crucifixion and resurrection, if Satan is bothering us, we can just tell him to flee, and he's got to leave. But there are areas in our life, in the rearview mirror, where we have been maybe foolish and when we're weak, and we should avoid those. I mean, those can be uh, uh, potential uh, thin places in our defense shield. And so if you know there's someone who's belonged to that cult, and that might be a problem for them, even though you have the right to eat that idol meat, out of concern for the weaker sister or brother. So this is not the license for every Christian to start telling every other Christian what to do. But it's if you're aware that there's someone for whom this might be an issue that might actually trouble them, you should put aside your rights because it's not about you. Christianity is not about you having a, a, a new super spiritual suit so you can just climb, again, that, the social ladder of the way the world works. So be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to someone who's weaker. From someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed? 
So this weak brother or sister whom Christ died ends up being destroyed by your, by your knowledge. So you're taking such pride in your knowledge. It's actually becoming a, 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 tool, a, a tool of the enemy. So when you sin against them in, I didn't do the typing very well there, them, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow. So we have a responsibility to one another. So knowledge versus love, meat offered to idols. Yep, meat offered to idols, those are just idols. But behind the idols, behind physical things, can, are sometimes spiritual forces. But if you're a believer, those spiritual forces can't just come and attack you. You can tell Satan to leave and he has to flee. But, there are, but for people who once were a part of that cult, that's an area of potential weakness. So if that's a problem for them, show love and concern for them and don't exercise your freedom in a way that actually is harmful to them. So concern for others, don't, you know, don't do it. Sacrifice your knowledge and your right in the interest of love for others, in this case, the weaker brother or sister. And this principle is going to be operative also in chapters 12 through 14 when, when, we're talking about the, when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. So uh, chapter 9. We're digesting quite a lot this morning. <laughs> chapter 9. Am I not free? And we don't really know what questions they, we don't really know what question they asked him at this point. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have you not seen the Lord Jesus the Lord, our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. So what we do know is Paul was there, founded the church, and then he left, and then a whole new group of people came in and started acting like they were smarter, better, knew more than Paul. And they started belittling Paul while he was not there. So there are people in judgment of him. <clears throat> Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles, like uh, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? So this is, a, this is a pretty complicated but you might know that what, what Paul is, works as a tent maker, right? He, he, he pays his own bills. And part of the accusation was, if Paul was really spiritual, if he was really trusting God, he wouldn't have a job. He wouldn't need to. He would trust God to provide for him. And Paul says, wow, <laughs> uh, okay, that's true. But the reason I'm working is so I, I'm, I, I'm, I don't want to be an actual burden to you. So I'm doing it for your benefit. They're attacking me as if I don't have enough faith. If I had real faith, I wouldn't work. But I'm choosing to work part-time to pay my own bills, so I'm not, uh, I'm not an impediment to you. That's his logic. And then he says, yeah, does a soldier just do it voluntarily? Does, does someone who plants a vineyard not get to eat the fruit of their work? Who tends a flock and doesn't get to drink the milk? Don't muzzle an ox. Well, even oxen, when they're working, get to eat a little bit of the grain. So, but, I, but I've chosen not to take advantage of that principle. 
out of my concern, my love for you. So, apart from other issues, Paul here in for chapter 9 says, says uh, the risen Christ of whom he has had a vision is the same as Jesus. This is really interesting. Paul didn't know the earthly Jesus, but he had this encounter with the risen Christ after the Damascus Road experience. He spent two years out in uh, uh, Arabia, as he puts it. And he can say that that risen Christ, the exalted, risen, heavenly Christ, is the same person as Jesus. Now that may seem obvious to us, but to a lot of people it, it, it's not. And to a lot of scholars it's not. They want to make some kind of distinction. But for him it's the same person. That's important for our faith. He says, I'm an apostle, I deserve to be paid, but I'm choosing not to. I'm not going to demand this right. Even though, there it is. They should, they have that right, but I'm not going to take advantage of it. Now, isn't that interesting, given what he's just written? I I have a right, but I'm not going to take advantage of my rights if it might be problematic. In our world, right, it's all about rights and perceived rights. I taught all day in San Jose yesterday, drove home, left San Jose around 4, and I saw lots of examples of perceived rights on the freeway. Many with hand gestures and emotion. But I, I'm not using any of those rights. I'm not writing this up that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than allow anyone to, be depri- to deprive me of this boast. He calls it a boast. Huh? And what's really interesting is the ancient world, unlike ours, boasting was not only normal, it was applauded. How can anyone know what you're, you know, what you're about unless you boast? So that's that's why what I don't know if it's been curious. Maybe it's always curious to me. Why does Paul talk about boasting so much? But his boasting is never in in him and like all his accomplishments. But it's boasting in the Lord. That's completely opposite. Everyone else would boast of like trying to build themselves up. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast. I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging this trust committed to me. For what then is my reward? It's just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So giving up his rights. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am no longer under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those who not, not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people set up by all possible means I might save some. So this is, I think this is one of the, the central passages for understanding Paul. 
And the basic idea, I think the basic idea here is this. Um, some things are more important than others. And for Paul, practically, the most important thing is connecting people to the risen Christ. For them to recognize their, you know, their brokenness so that they come to faith and the Spirit can live within. If you think about, think about uh, uh, Paul and Timothy and Paul and Titus, he makes a big deal that Titus didn't have to be circumcised. But in Acts 16, just four verses after the great Jerusalem council, he says to Timothy, uh, I'm going to ask you to get circumcised. <laughs> now the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, that's all about not having to get circumcised. And four verses later, he's asking Timothy to be circumcised. Why? Because the, the, the most important, the most important um, principle in his, in his functional operation, the way, he, the way he operates, his functional compass is winning people to Christ, getting them connected to the risen Christ and the Spirit of God coming to live within. So I'll do whatever it takes. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, this, is, this explains so much of what looks like he's, he does one thing here, does something else there. And so even, that's, even that determined, it, 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 it shaped how I was with you. I thought about how to be with you and be, and, and be as clear as possible about the gospel and have nothing be about me. And so I chose to preach among you and not charge. Because I didn't want that to be a stumbling block. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. So what is the prize? You know, we, we have been rescued from this, from this life. And we're no longer citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. But we're ambassadors here. And so that's what, he, that's what he's articulating. How to be an ambassador here is to have primary loyalty to God and, and heaven and the spirit leading. So everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. So this isn't, you know, this takes effort. This takes, this takes thought. This takes discipline. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. So I don't run like one running aimlessly. I don't box like I'm beating the air. And this next verse, it's very hard to translate. Uh, I think this is not a good translation. What he actually says is, I give my body a black eye. <laughs> that doesn't run very well in English, but that's really what the Greek is. I give my body a black eye so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified. So I want to remember that our life is hidden in Christ. We live here, we exist here, but we're, we're really citizens of heaven. And as ambassadors, we want to introduce others to the gospel, to the person of Jesus Christ, and to the Holy Spirit, so that they then can be set free to be what God intended us to be. Remember, even bigger picture, God made us to be in relationship to him. Our first parents walked away and we've inherited that brokenness and the proclivity for brokenness. And God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to make it possible for us not just to be saved from our sin, but to be saved for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I got three chapters done. 
not four. But I'm here next week, so. Thank you, Father God, for the fact that, um, you know, you didn't just give up on the human race. (laughs) But that you loved us so much, you continue to reach out. And you forgive, and you're patient. So it's our prayer, God, that you would help us to expand the place in our heart where your spirit dwells so we know you more. And it's our prayer that you would help us to see the world around us as you see it. To know what to avoid, what to deny, and to know how to be your ambassador here on this earth. Give us eyes to see others as Jesus did. These things we pray. And everybody said...